Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Good evening and welcome to our Conversation with the Candidate series. I'm Adam Sexton. Our guest this evening is South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Tonight we'll be getting to know the mayor and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions. And then after a break, we'll head to our studio audience for their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Pete Buttigieg was born and raised in South Bend, Indiana, graduating from high school there before getting his bachelor's degree in history and literature from Harvard. Buttigieg went on to become a Rhodes Scholar, studying philosophy, politics, and economics at Oxford. In 2011, he was elected mayor of South Bend at 29 years old and re-elected in 2015. Buttigieg served as a lieutenant in the U.S. Navy Reserve and in 2014 took an unpaid seven-month leave during his mayoral term for a deployment to Afghanistan, where he earned the Joint Service Commendation Medal for counterterrorism work. In 2017, he ran for the Democratic National Committee chairmanship, and he's currently the chair of the Automation and the Impacts on America's Cities Task Force at the United States Conference of Mayors. Buttigieg is married and lives with his husband in the same South Bend neighborhood where he grew up. Mayor Buttigieg, thank you so much for joining us on this evening on Conversation with the Candidate. Thank you for having me on. So you're the mayor of a Midwestern city, about 100,000 people. That's right. Uh, executive experience, but how do you go from that to the leader of the free world? Well, uh, I would argue that being a mayor of a city of any size gives you some of the most relevant experience. I get that it's an unconventional background, but I'm also not certain that uh, being in Congress is any better of a preparation right now. Matter of fact, I would argue we'd be well served if Congress started looking a little more like the best run cities and towns in the U.S. instead of the other way around. Uh, you know, I've got more years of government experience under my belt than the president. And if you think that's a low bar, I've got more executive experience than the vice president and more military experience than anybody to walk into that office since George H.W. Bush. And when you're a mayor, you get the call on every, anything. It could be an economic development deal, it could be a parks and recreation controversy, or it could be a racially explosive officer-involved shooting that you've got to get on television and resolve uh, the way people feel about it in a matter of minutes. At the end of the day, I think this executive job is about three things. Implementing good policy, capably running an administration, and the most important, calling people to their highest values and bringing them together. And I think that a mayor has that experience in, uh, in spades. Already in this Democratic primary field, we're seeing a migration to the left on policy. Where do you stand on that ideological spectrum within the Democratic Party? Well, I view myself as a progressive, but I also think that the spectrum is becoming less and less useful. I know analysts want to kind of line you up on an ideological plane, but I actually don't think that's how most of us think about policy. I think most of us think about, will this policy make us better off or worse off? And part of why I'm doing this is to change the vocabulary that our party uses, both to bring it to a higher level and talk about about our values and our philosophies and our beliefs before we get into the nitty-gritty of policies, but also bring it to the ground level, as mayors do, and talk about how anything we care about from climate issues to health care cashes out at the everyday level because that's why politics really matters. It stands to make our everyday lives better or worse. You meet the constitutional threshold for the presidency by about two years and change. What thought did you put into this as you entered into this process about 
do I have the life experience necessary to move forward here? Well, I have the life experience of somebody who uh, grew up in one of those communities, like so many industrial and rural communities in America, where you're told that success means getting out, which is exactly what I did, only to realize that coming home was where I would really find purpose. I have the life experience of working in the business community. I have the life experience of being sent to war in uniform on the orders of an American president. And I'm in my eighth year of executive government leadership, not just in any city, but a city that was considered one of America's 10 dying cities, according to press reports, the year that I ran for mayor, and is now growing again, seeing investment both in our neighborhoods and in our downtown, uh, and has a trajectory that I think is a powerful response to the vision that's being peddled out of the White House right now that would suggest that the only way to reach my part of the country is through nostalgia or through resentment. I don't believe you can ever have an honest politics that revolves around the word again. And I believe my experience and my community's experience gives me a way to talk about this that's just different from what the others can bring. You talk a lot about intergenerational justice. What does that mean? Well, I belong to a generation that has a lot at stake. The longer you're planning to be here, the more personal some of these issues are. And I think a lot about what the world will look like in the year 2054 when I get to the current age of the current president. You know, mine is the generation that uh, experienced school shootings as the norm. I was in high school when Columbine happened. We're the generation that provided the bulk of the troops in the conflicts after 9-11. Uh, the generation that will be on the business end of climate change for the rest of our lives and economically we're the generation that could be the first ever to be worse off than our parents if nothing is done. So I think it's time for our generation to put forward more voices and to talk about how we can build a generational alliance among voters that is concerned with the future uh, in the name of those, especially those still younger than I am, uh, for whom these questions are not theoretical. They can't be written off as somebody else's problem. They are personal and they are urgent. You hammered home the point about being from the Midwest, but how do Democrats win back the heartland of this country where they used to do so well? You know, it really cost my party badly, especially in 2016, when we appeared to be out of touch with the heartland. And, uh, you know, there's no reason it has to be so. There's actually a very rich progressive tradition in the American Midwest, a tradition of uh, leaders who stood up to power on behalf of uh, people going through ordinary everyday life in cities and, and factory workers and in rural areas too. Uh, but first of all, we've got to adjust the tone that my party sometimes uses to talk to people in the middle of the country. We can't appear to be condescending. Uh, and we also have to offer an alternative to what the president's putting forward, not just for Midwestern communities, but any community uh, that is wrestling with its young people leaving, any community that is being told that it might not have a future. We've got to recognize that there's no going back on the changes that are coming to our country and to our world. There's no honesty in saying that we can deal with these things by just turning back the clock. Um, but we also have to have uh, better answers on how, for example, we can make sure that technology and automation and, and, and globalization can be made to work for us rather than the other way around so that communities like mine and, and there are such communities in New Hampshire and across the country aren't going to be left behind. Mayor Pete, thank you so much. Uh, don't go anywhere because <laughs> we're right. going to head over to Studio B. After the break, we'll bring in our studio audience into this conversation. Stay with us. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it, just two taps brings you back in the know. Welcome back to Conversation with a Candidate and Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana. We want to get right to our questions from our town hall studio audience here, and we're going to start with Mr. William Coder. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm wondering what in your experience demonstrates the political and people skills 
needed to get your programs through Congress. Well, thank you. Uh, obviously, uh, the next president is going to have to uh, take an ambitious legislative strategy and actually get it through. Uh, first of all, that's the bread and butter of what uh, somebody in an executive role like mayor does. I mean, if I want to get anything done from passing uh, a budget that's uh, upwards of $300 million uh, in South Bend to making an organizational change to an administration that I'm supposed to run, I've got to convince a legislative body to do the same thing. Now, the challenge when it comes to the Congress is that uh, Congress is in some ways uh, structurally uneven because the districts are drawn in such a way that members of Congress often get to choose their voters instead of the other way around. And so I think we'll be pushing uphill, especially uh, if you have a progressive uh, set of policies policy goals in order to get that through. But I also think we learned in the 2018 midterm elections that uh, people, even in traditionally more conservative districts, are expecting more from members of Congress than they've gotten so far. And a president, uh, I think, who is skillful in this way can go into individual districts if necessary and mobilize people who really want to see these changes happen, want to see uh, a higher minimum wage, want to see everybody able to get health care, uh, want to see democratic reforms uh, to our institutions before it's too late, and want to see action on things like climate change. And I believe that uh, a skillful president, uh, and I believe I have the skills to do this, uh, can move people, mobilize them, and create pressure to where Congress has no choice but to do the right thing. Thank you. Thank you. William, thank you. Our next question comes from Carolyn Moore. Hi. Welcome to New Hampshire. Thank you. As you know, we pay the highest prescription drug prices. How will you specifically work to help lower the price for all Americans? Thank you. The prescription drug crisis is, uh, is alarming right now, and uh, it's put life-saving drugs sometimes out of reach for so many. Part of the challenge, I think, has to do with uh, making sure that the underlying costs are under control. For example, uh, allowing Medicare to negotiate on drug prices is a policy that to me represents common sense. We may also need to adjust what's being done around some of the windows on patents. We want pharmaceutical companies that come up with uh, life-saving drugs, of course, to be motivated to continue to do so. Uh, but sometimes you can tell just by some of these preposterous explosions in, in the cost of some drugs that it's not about that. It, it's simply about the profit motive. And I also think that at the end of the day, we've got to make sure that uh, the cost that the consumers face uh, is managed by having uh, more readily available health care for all. And it's one of the reasons why I believe we need a Medicare solution that moves us in the direction of Medicare for all by allowing more people uh, to get a robust public option on the exchange uh, that would help uh, the out-of-pocket costs for these drug purchases come under control. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Our next question comes from Frank Zito. If you're fortunate enough to be the Democratic nominee and you're in a debate with Donald Trump, how would you respond to a typical nasty negative personal verbal attack he would make against you? And assuming that you're in the debate, would you be comfortable using his first name and him using your first name? So instead of elevating him to Mr. President, since he'd be a candidate at that time, comfortable calling him Donald and him calling you Pete? Uh, I guess he's going to call me whatever he is going to call me, and uh, I probably don't have that much to say about it. I hadn't thought about the other question. I have a lot of respect for the office, uh, so I'm not sure I'd be prepared to do that. But I also think that we need to make sure that this debate isn't about him. Uh, one of the things I've noticed is that all the critical attention that, that goes his way, he has a way of just kind of devouring it and absorbing it and growing even bigger from it. And so I think the, the nominee is going to have to strike a very important balance where on one hand, when he does something false, uh, you obviously have to correct it. When he does something wrong, you've got to confront it. Um, but in many ways, we have to talk about a world where he's going to come and go. Because in my view, a presidency like this doesn't just happen. Somebody like him would not have even 
come within cheating distance of the presidency unless there were profound problems in our economy and our, our democratic system that made people, uh, well, people where I live, for example, angry enough to uh, vote to burn the house down. Uh, as far as the name calling, I think you know, we've got to be tough without emulating the thing that we're fighting. And as somebody who dealt with incoming rocket fire uh, when I was in the military, uh, and frankly, just as somebody who's gay and grew up in Indiana, I'm pretty comfortable dealing with bullies, too. Um, so uh, I, think, I think I can handle it. But uh, I do think that it'll be important for the nominee to, uh, uh, to learn how to strike that balance well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your question, Frank. We now have a social media question coming in oh. from Nathaniel Cook. He asks, how can this country afford and adjust to the Green New Deal in such a short amount of time? Yeah. So let's begin by being honest about the Green New Deal, which is that it is a set of goals more than it is a fully articulated plan about how we're going to reach those goals. But here's what I think the Green New Deal gets right. Number one, it correctly identifies that this is an emergency, a true national emergency, of the same proportions in terms of its destructive power as something like the Great Depression or even a world war. And we need to mount the same level of national resources uh, that we would to deal with something on the order of a war. The other thing that it gets right is it recognizes that there's economic promise in doing so. So uh, there are questions about affordability, but let's also talk about the opportunity that it creates. You know, part of how we ended the Great Depression was actually the investments that were made to win World War II. But it shouldn't take a war in order to mount that kind of effort. And what's so promising about the Green New Deal framework is it uh, identifies that jobs can be created. I mean, in my community right now, in our county, one of the biggest recent additions of union auto worker jobs was for a facility that's producing electric vehicles for a startup out of California. Uh, so there are ways that everybody can win in this. Of course it's expensive, but not nearly as expensive as doing nothing. And when people ask, you know, is 2030, for example, the right year to reach some of these carbon targets? Um, Look, scientifically, the right timing to reach those targets was yesterday. So anything we do is almost too late. And the question really is, well, do we have it in us as a country? And I believe we do. I believe in America enough to insist that we do, uh, to mount the kind of effort that would fully transform our economy. And shame on us if we don't, because unlike the Great Depression and unlike World War II, this is one that we actually see coming. Our next question comes from Christine Carter of Concord. Hello. Hi. What's your foreign policy philosophy? Do you believe that the United States should pull out of foreign entanglements to preserve our liberal order or commit to our allies in order to preserve the liberal world order? Well, thank you. The next president is going to have a lot of work to do to reestablish uh, a good direction for American foreign policy. I, I'm not sure America has a foreign policy right now. Uh, and as somebody who is deployed to war on the orders of a president, I know how important those policies can be. The first thing the next president's going to have to do is identify a standard for commitment of American force. And I believe that that standard has been far too loose in my lifetime. Uh, even now we see saber rattling around Venezuela as though it were appropriate to threaten U.S. military force there, even though it, there's no indication that that would contribute to anything, and certainly not that it rises to the level where American lives ought to be on the line. Uh, obviously, we have military power for a reason, and we should be prepared to use it when there is an existential threat or when there is no other choice. Uh, but there has to be a higher standard, and there has to be a pathway to ending endless war. Another thing we've got to do is reestablish U.S. credibility in the world. You could see in the isolation of the U.S. at the Munich Security Conference, for example, what happens when we lose our credibility. And I felt it. I mean, when I was deployed, one of the things that kept me safe was that I, I knew that the, the flag that was on my shoulder represented a country that kept its word. And, and our allies believed that, and our enemies believed that. 
and just as much as my body armor, that's something that helped keep me safe. Uh, so we have to participate in a world order. We can, either, we can either resent the rest of the world or we can lead it, but we can't do both. And the next president is going to have to establish an American leadership role, which means we begin with American interests. We always consult American values to make sure that what we think is in our interest is consistent with those values. And then, whenever we responsibly can, we vet those actions, grounded in our interests, motivated by our values, with American allies. Uh, because without our allies, it won't be America first. It will be America alone. Thanks. Thank you, Christine. Our next question comes from Gail Taylor. Mayor, uh, would you support overturning Citizens United? Yes. <laughs> I guess I get a little more time to, to attack that question. So let me say, but it, it sh I think it shouldn't be difficult mm. because that decision, I think, was a disaster for our democracy. You know, uh, if dollars can outvote people, uh, if companies have the same rights as citizens, then our democracy will be out of whack because economic power will turn into political power. And countries where that happens, it's never good. And I, I fear that, uh, I would hate for mine to be a generation that, that actually sees American democracy retreating when so much of the American trajectory over history has been watching our country become more democratic, make it easier to vote, and give more power to more people. Um, by the way, an honest answer to your question has to mention that it might not be possible without a constitutional amendment. Oh, right. So let's have a constitutional amendment. This is a country that once changed our constitution in order to make it illegal to drink. And then realized that was a bad idea and changed it back, right? So why wouldn't we consider constitutional amendments to fortify our democracy when our democracy is the thing that keeps us safe? And frankly, in my view, the thing that makes America, America. Thanks. Thank you, Gail. Our next question comes from Brenda Bouchard. Hi. My husband passed away in, in 2017 after having lived with younger onset Alzheimer's disease for so 12 sorry. and a half years. Thank you. My mother has Alzheimer's and my sister was diagnosed with Alzheimer's last summer. By 2050, it's anticipated 14 million Americans will be living with Alzheimer's or related dementia at a projected cost of $1.1 trillion. So how will you deal with that public health crisis and the strain that it is and will continue to put on our federal and state budgets? Well, first of all, thank, thank you, you for, for speaking out about that issue. I'm, I'm so sorry that it's touched your family in so many ways. Uh, someone I care about back home is going through this right now. And uh, it's such a cruel, it's a cruel disease, exceptionally cruel. And so we need to support people who, who are dealing with that or whose loved ones are dealing with that. Um, the cost that you mentioned is enormous. Um, uh, someone today actually who I encountered this morning said that there was something like a $290 billion annual cost even now, if I, if I heard him right. And uh, that would suggest that we should be investing at a much higher level in order to deal with these things. You know, when something is a national priority, uh, I'm told, for example, the, the moon landing project, that in today's dollars would amount to something like $10 billion a year. Uh, I don't know what the exact right amount is for R&D, but I'm pretty sure it ought to be more than we're doing right now. There's a reason why the National Institutes for Health and the CDC exist. There are some things that the market just doesn't take care of on its own. And we hope that the pharmaceutical industry can come up with solutions too, but we, we can't just let the corporate world handle it all, not when it's that important. And we also need to make sure that uh, long-term care and memory care 
are better understood through our system because as you likely have experienced, uh, you know, memory care is so demanding. Uh, it, it's more than, than anything that, that uh, any other form of kind of in-home nursing care or traditional uh, uh, nursing home care can really accommodate. And uh, my sense is that our current structure for health insurance and, and uh, the way that, that healthcare is provided doesn't really recognize that and certainly doesn't take into account the dimensions of what the statistics you just mentioned about how this issue, until we finally, God willing, find a cure, um, what it's going to take to accommodate it. Thank you. Thank you. Brenda, thank you for your question. Another social media question, this one coming from the rightward end of the political spectrum. Jeff Cease asks, will he try to infringe on our Second Amendment rights like the rest of the Dems? <laughs> Second Amendment's going to be just fine. And uh, I come from a community in a state where we take Second Amendment rights seriously. Uh, and the Second Amendment is something that's been part of our Constitution the whole time. Now, I will say this. Uh, we have sometimes allowed the debate to get skewed. So, for example, universal background checks. This is something that 90% of Americans, from what I can tell, 80% of Republicans, the vast majority of gun owners, think makes sense. I mean, most of us think that you ought to be able to demonstrate who you are in order to get a weapon, that we ought to keep it out of the hands of people who, uh, who, who could be dangerous, people with uh, uh, certain kinds of convictions, people who are on a terrorism watch list. I mean, this is common sense. And it is, in my view, fully compatible with the Second Amendment. Look, the Second Amendment didn't say you can't restrict any access to any arms, right? We've decided as a society that somewhere in between a slingshot and a nuclear weapon, we're going to draw a line. And we can argue over what that line's going to be, but we're all doing it in good faith within the Second Amendment. But I've got to tell you, uh, when 90% of Americans want uh, something like background checks to be universal and the U.S. Congress can't deliver, when Washington can't do something that most of us think is common sense. Same with things around gun trafficking or, or, or you know, what was happening with, with NICS, the registry that we have red flag laws to uh, help flag people with uh, spousal abuse histories or, or mental health issues. If we can't deliver on that, that's not just about this issue, it's about our democracy. Look, I swear in police officers, I'm there when they're sworn in and their spouses are at their side and their children are sometimes there. And I don't want them to be at a disadvantage keeping our neighborhoods safe because we can't enact common sense gun safety policy that is both constitutional and has been tested and is known to reduce the risk of people coming to harm. Our next question comes from Aaron Fowler of Derry. Hello. In no other circumstances in America are controlled substances used for both medicinal and recreational use, which is the case with some uh, marijuana in some states. Are you concerned about the message legalizing marijuana sends and would you approve recreational legalization in the United States? I think that is the direction we need to move in and uh, I don't want to be naive about uh, the harms that can come with addiction to marijuana um, or the harms that can come from smoking really anything. Um, those ought to be sa taken seriously and at the same time I think it's clear that the policies we've had around marijuana have done more harm than good. Uh, you look at rates of incarceration, you look at the racial disparity that is attached uh, to whether somebody is likely to experience incarceration as a consequence of a nonviolent drug offense. Uh, and all of it, I think, points us in the same direction. So I don't believe this is something that should be taken lightly, uh, but I do believe that we need to remove many of these restrictions and uh, in, a, in a free country, uh, place a little more weight on this issue on personal responsibility. Okay. Thank you. Okay, another social media question coming in. Uh, Joel Prescott asks, will he accept PAC money? Nope. 
Uh, I will not accept corporate PAC money. If, uh, if, if workers are, are paying into uh, a, you know, an organization and they want somebody to stand up for them, that's a different story. But uh, I've decided not to accept corporate PAC money, which is one of the reasons why I should mention we're really counting on folks at the grassroots fundraising level, if they want me to be on that debate stage, to go on over to PeteForAmerica.com and lend a hand at any level. So what other sort of distinctions would you like to make when, in terms of taking campaign contributions? Uh, some emphasize more than others, I guess. You know, I'm, I'm not comfortable taking uh, fossil fuel contributions either. Uh, but uh, one of the things I've realized is the clearer I am about my message, probably uh, more, uh, if you want to call it nefarious money or inappropriate money, probably not likely to be coming my way anyway. Um, so what I'm trying to do is just uh, have the right message and then trust uh, within those restrictions I just mentioned to you. Um, trust that uh, people will decide based on their values who they want to contribute to. I just hope that we can make it more and more of a grassroots thing uh, and uh, really invite people contributing at any level uh, to make that statement, especially because you know, the DNC has said in order to be invited to the debate, You've got to show that you have 65,000 individual contributions from different people. Any level could be three bucks, um, but uh, at, at, uh, at that kind of range. And maybe that's a healthy push uh, because it's, it's better than having us think that fundraising is all about getting a handful of people to write the biggest possible checks. All right, one last quick social media question. Peter Skawira asks, can we see your taxes? Uh, sure, yeah, we'll make that happen. All right. I'm still doing my taxes right now. But <laughs> we'll make it. And as are most of us. It's, it's, not, it's not that exciting. I mean, I'm a, I'm a mayor and I'm married to a teacher, but uh, uh, yeah, sure. With about a minute left here, I just want to ask you, when someone says Afghanistan, who is the person in that country that you think about? Wow. Well, mostly I think about the people I served with. Um, some of them are still there and uh, extraordinary people in uh, civilians and, and the military. And I think about the faces of the people that I would see. So part of my job in Afghanistan, I had a very co kind of complicated military style title as an intelligence officer doing counterterrorism. The truth is my most important job was uh, Uber. I, I was driving. <laughs> I was driving and sometimes guarding vehicles. And um, what it meant was that I saw this city, Kabul. And as a mayor, you always think about cities as, as a mayor. So you saw what happened in, in a community where they didn't have trash pickup like we do, and trash would pile up on the side of the road. And they couldn't necessarily count on uh, uh, safety or clean water, even things like animal control. I used to have to swerve around packs of dogs sometimes in the downtown. And you realize just how important uh, those conditions of living are. How do you do winter? Outside? Inside? Either way, we've got fresh ideas. Served up hot or cold. You ready? If you're after winter adventures, packed with powder, or once brewed fresh, looking for action, or a break from it. Need a place to chill, or somewhere to warm up. Make the season better. With New Hampshire Chronicle, get more out of winter. You were talking about the people you think of when you think about Afghanistan. So tell us, what are those, you're talking about the faces that you used to see there out on the road. Yeah, I mean, what you saw, the thing that you don't get from coverage sometimes is when there's a war going on, most people, their full-time job isn't to be in a war. They're just going about their lives. Uh, and so that's what you saw. I mean, you saw school children and, and, and business people and people trying to go about their lives, but there was a war on. And it just reminded me what's at stake in the security and the basics we provide. I guess the last thing I'll mention is that uh, I think a lot about uh, Election Day and the people I saw who had a purple ink on their finger. That's how they make sure you don't vote twice. You dip your... Uh, your finger in ink. But the thing is, the Taliban were saying that if they caught anybody who had voted, uh, they might kill you. And so, I mean, we think about that I voted sticker that, uh, that we, at least we do it back home. I hope you, I hope you all do it here too. Um, and uh, the idea that, that that would not only be an expression of pride, but 
uh, you'd be putting your life at risk to do it. And they still did it. I mean, they lined up in order to be able to vote. And if they can do that, then we can do that. We should have much higher rates of voter participation, and we have policies, we should have policies, that make it easier for people to vote. Okay, let's get back to our studio audience questions, and Stephen Kidder. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm an ACLU voter, which means that I prioritize civil liberties when I cast my ballot, and an issue for me that's really important is LGBTQ plus rights, and I wanna know, will you do federally what we in New Hampshire are trying to do locally, which is, legal, which is legally recognize a third gender on IDs? I think that's a great idea, and uh, I think we ought to do that. Look, uh, uh, a lot of folks, I think, believe that marriage equality kind of settled LGBTQ issues. And uh, uh, as somebody whose marriage, I mean, it's the most important thing in my life. And it only exists by the grace of a single vote on the Supreme Court. So, so I think about that a lot. And then I recognize all the work left to be done, the way that they're picking on trans people from high school to the military. Uh, the fact that we don't have a federal equality act right now, you can still get fired, including a lot of parts of Indiana where I come from just for who you are, or who you love. And there's also just practical matters. I mean, a lot of times it's a practical thing. It's about, like all good politics, it's about getting through your day, mm -hmm. getting through your life. And uh, to be honest, I hadn't really contemplated the ID piece, um, but it makes sense to me, um, because it's a reminder that this is about making everyday life just a little bit easier for all of us. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Leonard Morrill. Hi. First of all, thank you for being here. My question is, do you think eliminating the Electoral College will cause voter apathy and thus affect local elections in many small states with small populations? I actually think the reverse is true. So I believe there's a lot of voter apathy as a consequence of the Electoral College. Uh, there are tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of Americans who get the message most years that their vote doesn't matter. So for example, in Indiana, where I am, uh, because we're a very conservative state, um, most years nobody even comes to campaign uh, or even attempts to campaign in our state. In California, because they're very liberal, it's the same thing. So at risk of sounding a little simplistic, I believe that it will when it comes to the general election, I'm not talking about primaries, um, but when it comes to the general election, we ought to reform this so that one person gets one vote. And it doesn't matter where you live, and it doesn't matter if you're in a big city or a small town, it doesn't matter where the state line is compared to where your house is, you get a vote. And everybody's votes count the same, and whoever gets the most vote wins. Um, and uh, that would lead to, it would lead us out of a situation today where entire populations of entire states don't believe it's worth bothering to go to the polling booth because they think the Electoral College will nullify what they have to say. And sure enough, at my tender age, in my short lifetime, twice the Electoral College has overruled the American people. Just a quick follow-up on that question. We know that in large states, uh, there is voter apathy as well, and that elections are conducted largely on television through advertising. And you don't see as much retail campaigning as you do in the smaller states. If you are going to abolish the Electoral College, how would you ensure that those traditions would continue and that candidates would come to a place like New Hampshire where yeah. they would not be incentivized to come because of our small population? Well, I think retail politics in some, first of all, that's my bread and butter, right? I'm a mayor. And, and honestly, somebody like me trying to do something like this would be impossible if it weren't for things like the role of New Hampshire, where I can come and engage with people 30 at a time or five at a time instead of trying to uh, raise all the money and get on television the whole time. But I also think because of digital communication, a retail encounter that happens in a small community can also be shared more widely. I actually think it increases the incentive to have retail politics because there's an expectation, especially in my generation, uh, of authenticity. And authenticity isn't tested uh, on the airways. It certainly isn't tested in commercials. Uh, you, you have to meet people. Now, the way we get to watch people meet other people may, may evolve through technology. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is in an environment where everybody gets an equal vote, 
then uh, a candidate who wants to connect with different kinds of audiences will have to show up in the biggest cities and in the smallest towns uh, in order to demonstrate their ability to relate to different audiences. Uh, and to my mind, it, it can only stand to enhance the extent to which our democratic republic really is democratic. The next question comes from Joan Krimlisk. Welcome. Thank you. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, how would you make um, Medicare and Medicaid solvent and expand Medicaid? Such an important question because so many people get health care through Medicaid. And, uh, you know, Medicaid's often been put on the chopping block, which is moving in, in the wrong direction. Uh, there are several things we need to do. Part of it is the underlying cost. Uh, and that, I think, involves looking at the whole patient and, and trying to cover patients rather than trying to cover individual conditions. It's part of what we did in South Bend. So we're an employer, we're self-insured, all my city workers uh, that I work, my coworkers and, and me, we're all, we're all in a plan that the city pays for. And we were actually able to take the escalation of healthcare costs and bend that curve and flatten it out by opening a clinic that served employees and, and taking care of their well-being more holistically. So we need a, a health uh, provider and payer system that is better incentivized to do that. Uh, we also need to tackle the fact that a lot of healthcare costs is driven not by the cost of an actual procedure, but by the cost of bureaucracy. Among countries, we're one of the worst modern countries when it comes to the percentage of our healthcare spend that is going into administrativia and bureaucracy rather than to actual patient care. I think there are two things we can do about that. One of them is kind of unglamorous, under the hood, technocratic work like uh, automating certain processes. Fewer hands should touch a prior authorization. Matter of fact, it should be zero, it should be automatic, but we're just not there yet. But also, it's one of the reasons why I think we need to extend coverage more broadly, because the kind of rate setting that can go on when more people are covered in uh, what I would call a Medicare for all who want it scenario, which I think is the pathway to Medicare for all, basically take a version of Medicare, make it available on the exchanges uh, as, a, uh, as a kind of public option. That will lead to lower costs. If people like me are right, then it'll automatically lead to lower costs. Um, if the corporate world can somehow come up with a better version before it's too late, good for them. That'll also mean lower costs. But all of that takes some of the pressure off Medicaid. We also just have to be ready to fund it. I mean, there's also a, uh, an even simpler answer, um, which is that we cannot uh, underfund Medicaid. And if that means revenue, if that means looking at a wealth tax, uh, or if it means a, a financial transactions tax or other ways to, to fund this, we have to do it because we have to regard healthcare as a right and not something just for some people. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. Another social media question coming in here from uh, one of our more conservative uh, viewers. Jay Menard asks, why don't you want a secure southern border? <laughs> Everybody wants a secure southern border. It's just the, the premise of the question is, why wouldn't I want, <laughs> why wouldn't we all want a secure southern border? And I know that in these social media bubbles, other people's motivations get twisted. Does anybody really think that a fellow American's not interested in us having a secure country? So let's talk about what it actually takes to have a secure southern border. I guess my response to your questioner is, what makes you think border security is as simple as putting up a wall from sea to shining sea? Uh, look, the reality is the wall's never going to get built. Everybody knows that. The president knows that. I think a lot of his supporters even know that. It's a symbol. But the very real walls that are being built by this president and by this moment are around us and between us and each other. And those walls are getting worse. And uh, trying to... Uh, caricature the motivations of fellow Americans who have policy disagreements as though somebody, as though somebody like me who put my life on the line to defend this country is any less patriotic than the questioner. That's the sort of thing that frays at the security of our country and in my view is frankly much more dangerous than a terrified Central American family coming to uh, plead for asylum 
through a process that, by the way, is perfectly lawful uh, at the southern border. Next question comes from Susan Covert. Hi, thanks for being here. Thanks. In your um, personal life as opposed to your political life, what was the hardest thing that you ever faced and what did you learn from that experience? Hmm. Um, we spent so much time in Afghanistan that I won't take us back there yet again. Obviously, that was a challenging time that I learned a lot from. Probably the most challenging time in my life uh, was earlier this year when we lost my father. Um, we lost him to cancer. And uh, the whole process was one where, I mean, he got excellent medical care. Um, it was very difficult though. We had, I make decisions for a living, but nothing could have prepared me for some of the end of life decisions that our family faced. Um, one thing I learned about it was the closeness of our family. The, the, sorry, you're taking me to a <laughs> tough place. Um, the importance of my marriage. Um, my husband absolutely just propped our family up. Helped my father in his last days, helps my mother right now, helps me. Um, but the other thing, um, was that in all these painful decisions, all we had to, what we had to worry about was what was medically right for our family. And what we didn't have to worry about was money. Not because we're wealthy, we're not. But because some people made a policy decision a long time ago about Medicare, that when you reach a certain age, we will take care of this. And so in all of these vulnerable moments for our family, we never had to worry about whether our family would be financially ruined by taking care of our father and doing medically the right thing for him. I'm sorry about your dad. Thank you. Thanks. Our next question comes from Liz Katowski of Nottingham. Hi, Hi Mayor Pete. Oh. How about that? <laughs> that will work better. Thank you. Um, many candidates talk about wanting to help the middle class, but I'm concerned about the 40 plus million people who are below the poverty line or just above it. What are your ideas for breaking the cycle of persistent poverty in America? And what can a president do to help bring about that change? Thank you. First of all, thank you for shining a light on a constituency that doesn't get as much of a voice often. Uh, often they are uh, too preoccupied with surviving to participate in a lot of political processes and show up at council meetings or town halls. Um, my community is largely low income, about a quarter below the poverty line. Our per capita income just rose above $20,000. We're celebrating that because it's actually higher than it was. But these issues are, are very close to home for me. Uh, and the reality is part of this has to do with policy. Now there are policies we are doing at the local level to help. Um, things, for example, around transportation, which can be a real poverty trap for people who don't earn enough to have a car and need a car to get to work so they can earn enough to get a car. There are all kinds of traps like that when you're low income, when you're just trying to get by. It's one of the reasons why I think we need to take, air, take care of uh, Medicaid, as was mentioned earlier. Um, it's also uh, fundamentally, though, partly a question of the fairness of our uh, economy and our tax system. Uh, look, the American dream consists, you can measure the American dream in a number actually. And that number is how many people who were born in the bottom fifth of the country can make it to the top. And that proportion is going down in our country. Matter of fact, the number one country in the world to live out that American dream today is Denmark. We're not even in the top 10 last time I checked. And we've got to do more about that. That means a fairer tax code. Uh, that means investing in the things we disinvested in, like education, that have been a pathway to the middle class and beyond. Um, making sure the basics like safety, infrastructure, and healthcare. And by the way, also to the extent that racial inequity is intertwined with the, the level of poverty you're talking about. Um, also recognize how things like our uh, war on drugs and our uh, policies of incarceration 
have made entire categories of people more likely to be poor and stay poor generationally. And only a policy overhaul can change that future for the next generation to come. Thank you, Liz. One of the fires burning in our community and probably yours as well as the opioid crisis. Yes. We're curious to know, uh, how has that affected South Bend? And what ideas do you have on the national level to be able to address that crisis? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, like, like here, it's, that's an issue back home. People I know and, and care about uh, that, that we've lost uh, as part of this crisis. Um, there are several things I think we should do. First of all, we are suing to hold uh, opioid companies accountable that did the wrong thing. Um, there is evidence of wrongdoing. But we can't be too simplistic about this. I mean, one thing that was a blessing during my father's last days was, uh, was properly used and administered pain medication. Um, so really what we've got to do is recognize that this is a public health crisis, not uh, just a, a crisis to be handled with the instruments of the justice system. The justice system can help, especially if we have diversion drug courts and addiction treatment, but uh, we also need medically assisted therapy. Uh, which is uh, common sense from a public health perspective, but sometimes unpopular because people think you're, you're facilitating addiction, when really what you're doing is you're trying to make sure addiction doesn't turn into fatality. We need a bridge between, you know, sometimes you can wake up in the hospital bed from an overdose, uh, and maybe we saved you with the Narcan, uh, but then maybe we signed you up for a rehab program that'll see you in three weeks, and good luck surviving from now till then which is why we need interveners who can walk you through that process and check in on you. We're trying to add resources for that in South Bend. It'd be nice to have a, more of a wind at our backs federally. Uh, and uh, we've also got to deal with some of the root issues of, of the dislocation and disorientation that helps to explain why things like addiction and suicide are approaching all-time highs. And those are some deep social, I would say, uh, even spiritual and moral questions affecting our society. And they're only going to get more challenging because of what's happening with automation and the future of work and the way that we're being tossed around in this economic reality and the, 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 the pace of change. I think we can rise to it, um, but that means building up roles for community and faith and family that go far beyond what we've been able to do up to date. Our next question comes from Richard Savory. Hi, Mia. Um, I, my dad is a, a Kennedy Democrat. So I grew up a Kennedy Democrat like my brothers and sisters and a lot of my family. A lot of my friends, we all talk about the fact we can't find any real Democrats because all the Democrats who run for office now are pushing all kinds of socialist ideas and they brag about being socialist as a Democrat. So where can we get back to the middle ground and working for the American people? Well, I think what we've got to do is talk about ideas in terms of whether they work or not. Uh, because I'm worried that, that the word socialist has kind of lost its meaning. It just gets tossed around. I'll give you an example. The Affordable Care Act was developed at the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative organization. The first time it was ever implemented was in Massachusetts by a Republican governor. And when a Democratic president basically stole that Republican idea and tried to do it, um, it was immediately described as socialist by his opponents. We're seeing a lot of things that most Americans agree with, background checks, higher minimum wage, the idea everybody ought to get health care. So they're centrist positions in the sense that most Americans agree with them. But the center of gravity of the American people is, I think, nowhere near the center of gravity of the American Congress. And it's one of the reasons I'm so concerned about things like redistricting um, that skew the makeup of the Congress to be veering off from where we are. I think there's a newer generation that didn't live to see the days when socialism and communism were viewed as pretty much the same thing. And you're either for that or you were for capitalism and democracy. I think a newer generation that didn't live through the Cold War is asking about all the times democracy and capitalism come into tension. 
Uh, I think uh, we're a society that is built by the extraordinary productive power of capitalism. But you can't have capitalism, in my view, you can't have capitalism work well unless you also have a robust democracy that can constrain the excesses of that capitalism. And to me, if, if you want to see what happens when you don't have that, look at Russia. So just as Russia was an exam a warning sign uh, around a certain kind of, of communism a generation ago, now it shows you exactly what happens when you have uh, private markets but no rule of law. And what happens is cronyism, of course. So labels are going to be thrown around, especially by this president who's, who seems to be on a kick uh, of using this as a way to kind of shut down debate. Uh, and there are others who are embracing the labels. To me, I want to move through the labels and just talk about what works. And uh, look, socialism means one thing in Denmark and another thing in Venezuela, Venezuela. So I don't even know what it's supposed to mean in America. I just want to talk about whether ideas will make our lives better and whether they're consistent with the values that make us American. And I'm trying uh, very hard as a uh, potential candidate to find a vocabulary that will allow us to have that conversation that I hope would ring true to the kind of uh, inspiring uh, candidacy and then presidency that, that I also was raised on, that, that President Kennedy represented. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. And speaking of what works, uh, next question, automation and artificial intelligence. You've focused on this a lot, and as part of your work uh, as a mayor, uh, talking with other mayors, Specifically, what would you want to do about that if you're the President of the United States uh, to turn those forces uh, into a positive net gain for jobs in the American economy? Right. This is a huge issue because the, the pace of automation is only going to pick up. Uh, and there are a lot of things that, that happened, certainly in, in my part of the country, in the industrial Midwest, uh, that people may have assumed were because of trade but really had more to do with automation. Um, one thing that's going to happen as a consequence of automation is fewer and fewer people will be able to assume uh, that they will have a lifelong relationship with a single employer, which used to be something we would really count on. And it wasn't just for income. It, it helped explain who we were. It helped us fit into society. Uh, you know, it's like when you go to a party and somebody says, what do you do? It's the first question to understand who you are, right? And it's alarming to contemplate that going away. I mean, people in my generation and younger are liable to change careers more frequently than our parents change jobs. And a lot of that's because of automation. So we need to make sure that we have measures in terms of uh, not just helping people uh, bridge income uh, when they're disrupted in the economy, uh, but it's one of the reasons why I think it's important to have universal health care so that you're, if you're going to go through 12 different employers in your life, why should you be on 12 different health care plans in your life? It's one of the reasons why I think we need to have more portable benefits. Um, but it's also a reason why we need to look to deeper sources of meaning um, than the assumption that you're always going to have one employer. Uh, and that means sources of meaning at risk of sounding a little conservative. Uh, that might be things like faith and, and family and community. I have seen community become a powerful source of identity for people in my city that I'm not even sure what they do for a living. It's, it's not as important as what they do in the city. And I think we need a, a federal uh, policy, but also just a, a federal vocabulary that honors that and lifts that up. Another social media question before we get back to our town hall questioners. Barry O'Neill asks, do you know what the real definition of bipartisanship is? <laughs> uh, I can tell you what my definition of bipartisanship is, which is uh, finding ways to get things done with people who might have different values. What I don't think it is, is pretending to be something you're not. I, I earned a lot of Republican and independent support in South Bend. It was never by pretending to be more conservative than I am. It's not always about ideological centrism. Sometimes it's just about uh, finding commonality. I'm on my third Republican governor. And uh, I found ways to work with each of them in order to benefit the economy in our community. Uh, when I disagreed with them, we, we made it very clear and explained why. But I think we actually need more good faith conversations between people who have honest disagreements, who talk about why. Uh, 
instead of trying to kind of shape shift and be something we're not in hopes that that will somehow be more appealing to the middle uh, than simply stating what we're for and trusting that voters may not agree with us on everything. Uh, but we'll get a sense that whatever our views are, we came by them honestly and will trust us with the benefit of the doubt on the rest. Next question comes from William Fortune of Lee. Lee. Greenhouse gas free, walk away safe, factory built, economical, efficient power plants are ready to be built now. And we can build them in New Hampshire with our world-class craftspeople. Estimates are that with the 45 billion spent on alternative energy, we could build 20 500 megawatt units per year and supply the world with clean energy. Will you pledge as a candidate and president to support our efforts to implement and implement them to have the military kickstart the industry by having the military buy a few of these units and put them on military bases hmm. that we can get started now. Great. Uh, well, I will support renewable energy investment. I haven't reflected on the, the role that the military in that particular technological context can play, but I can tell you it's attractive. You know, I remember when I was in Afghanistan, uh, the first time I was there, I actually traveled there as a civilian economic advisor and I was working on utility issues. And uh, I found out what they're paying over there for electricity. And I realized in the field how complex it is when you have often diesel generators, right, which are incredibly inefficient, expensive, uh, and generate a lot of emissions, but are how a lot of people get their power. And it's one of the reasons why if we can bend that cost curve around other renewable technologies just a little bit more, uh, they will become economical for the rest of us. And it wouldn't be the first time uh, that the Defense Department has helped power major growth. Right? I mean, look no further than DARPA. Uh, the, the Internet, you, you can leave your Al Gore joke alone. Um, the federal government literally invented the Internet. And it happened as part of an agency called DARPA. Uh, which was an advanced research agency, is in, in the Department of Defense. So things that aren't quite ready for the market to take on yet um, can be proven out by the DOD. And there is no question, I can pledge this much to you right, standing right here, uh, that part of our defense strategy uh, will be around uh, renewable energies and climate issues because it is uh, the single biggest enterprise in America, is the, is the U.S. Department of Defense. So it ought to be leading the way. Thank you. Thank you, William. Our next question comes from Bob Friedlander of Concord. Thanks. Can you describe a mentoring relationship that had an impact on your decision to go into public service? Uh, yeah, uh, trying to pick just one because my, my life has been shaped by so many mentors and, and uh, teachers, especially teachers, people who just believed in me. Uh, I had uh, an economics teacher who, uh, this is going to sound like the nerdiest thing ever, but uh, I, I was part of a team uh, that did a mock um, uh, monetary policy meetings. There's actually a competition circuit for this. Um, and, uh, and it was great. I mean, it was an empowering experience. And uh, more than anything, she believed in us. And so many great teachers can, can light that spark. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I think we, we need to honor and frankly compensate the teaching profession a lot better than we do today. Uh, so, you know, there are people I've got to know, especially in recent years, who are uh, extraordinary, famous powerful people that I've learned a lot from, but uh, probably the ones that have most set my trajectory uh, in the way that it is to my benefit, other than my own parents, uh, are the teachers who took a little time and saw something in me, especially when I was a middle school kid, couldn't pay attention to anything, uh, but figured I was bright and, and gave me some room to figure the rest out. Um, that really made me who I am. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. 
Uh, question here. The president recently held a summit with the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. Do you believe this direct engagement approach is making the threat of thermonuclear war uh, greater or reduced? Well, there's certainly no evidence that it's helping. As a matter of fact, we've seen some backtracking in terms of North Korean expansion of nuclear capability. Uh, look, engagement and diplomacy are obviously something that we should, as, as gen a general rule, in principle support. But uh, you look at what hap what's happening in the relationship with North Korea, and uh, you know, usually when you have a second summit, it's in order to build on the progress and the promises that have been kept since the first summit. That's how these things work. Uh, and it's not clear that this was part of any framework uh, that, that was driving toward any strategic goal. Uh, it has opened up an interesting conversation about whether we have to achieve denuclearization before we can talk about peace on the peninsula, or whether we can actually pursue peace as a means to get denuclearization. Um, and, and that's a healthy debate to be having. But it is alarming when you're dealing with a nuclear power, especially one that is led by a horrifying dictator, uh, to think that we would give him what he most wants, which is legitimacy on the international stage with that face-to-face -face meeting unless you really know what you're doing. And I'm sorry, but I just don't look at the folks running foreign policy and the White House right now and think, okay, even though it doesn't make any sense, I can really trust that these folks know what they're doing. It's just, just not true. Now, I'm curious. If this goes the way you want it to go and you're in the White House, you can't be the mayor of South Bend anymore, nope. obviously. What's the one project or thing going on in South Bend that is not complete yet? that you're going to miss working on if you're not the mayor there anymore? Uh, so if I get my way, we're going to have a train between South Bend and Chicago. We actually already do have the train. That's the thing, but it's two and a half hours. I can drive it in one and a half. And um, <laughs> there, it uh, sounds like this is rhyming with some experiences around here. Uh, if we did a few things with the uh, mostly existing rolling stock and, and, and right-of-way, but a few key changes, we could bring it downtown. We could have it be an hour and a half ride. Um, the good news is I would get to work on something like that uh, at the federal level, too, because we've got to, look, air travel is going to have a role. But um, why should Americans settle for a worse train network than pretty much any other developed country? Why should we not have, when China is building incredibly fast trains in various parts of the country, especially places like New England and the Midwest where I live, where a lot of our big cities could be uh, a short train ride away from each other, and we know the carbon and the emissions benefits of it. I'm not even necessarily asking for Japanese-level trains. Just give me Italian-level trains, and we'd be better <laughs> off than we are right now. Um, so I suppose in a different fashion, I hope I'll get to work on that anyway. But I will be very proud, uh, hopefully, to see South Bend and, and Chicago get that connection because it will help with the connectivity and the flow of talent and goods and capital uh, that's helping our entire region find its economic future. Should it give us any pause that California just walked away from its high-speed rail project? Well, I think when you're trying to do something like that as a state without the right kind of federal support, if we don't have a national policy uh, on transportation, then it's that much harder for any uh, one state to figure out. We certainly should learn from the California experience, and as you always do, uh, look to our states as laboratories and see what worked well and what didn't before you're deciding what to replicate nationally. Uh, but I certainly don't think that it's uh, uh, some kind of disproof of the concept of trains, if only because the human species has done pretty well uh, setting itself up with that form of transportation around the world. And last question here. Can you give us in New Hampshire and the world a bit of a primer on how to pronounce your last name? <laughs> <laughs> sure, it's pronounced Buttigieg. But uh, back home, everybody just calls me Pete, so that's fine, too. The good news is, uh, uh, you know, primaries, uh, elections are multiple choice, so as long as you can pick it out of a lineup, we'll be good. So it's, ma it's managed to sink in over time there. This, as you've been mayor there, it's been 
kind of people just get used to it. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, where I come from, there's a lot of, uh, we, we had an East European ethnic immigration oh, okay. tradition. My father immigrated from Malta, which is a bit different. But it's good politics for me, because I can let people on the west side assume I'm Polish. And on the east side, they can assume I'm Czech or Hungarian. And uh, it all just kind of, we got one guy, not to detain you as you're no, closing no, no. out this segment. We got one guy with uh, P-R-S-Z-Y-B-Y-S-Z. -Y -Y there's not one vowel in his entire name. <laughs> it's, a, it's a remarkable thing. Sounds like a great name to have in South Bend <laughs> if you're going to run for office. Uh, one last question. Yeah. Are, are you obligated to root for the Fighting Irish being the mayor of South Bend? Pretty much. It would be, uh, it would be pretty provocative if I didn't. You know, I grew up, I'd go with my dad starting at the age of six. Uh, I was spoiled because it turned out to be the national championship team, and it hasn't happened since. But uh, I feel a little bit conflicted when they're playing Navy. Uh, I suppose if by some strange miracle uh, Harvard became good enough at football to play Notre Dame, <laughs> I'd be a little convicted, uh, conflicted then too. But uh, no, i got to root for the Irish. Well, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, we thank you for your time on Conversation with the Candidate. Thank you. We thank our wonderful studio audience. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.